Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's one thing falling in love with a house, picturing yourself moving in and calling it home, and quite another navigating the world of price negotiating, mortgage lenders, and finding the budget that works best for you. An agent who's a Realtor can make understanding that world easier. Realtors have the expertise, access to proprietary data, and tools to help you get from imagining living somewhere to actually doing it. That's the kind of help we can provide. Because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. It's Monday, January 16th, 2017, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Kishore Hari. Indre is traveling this week, but we'll be back soon. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds, inquiringshow.tumblr.com, or on Twitter at inquiringshow and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Today's episode is sponsored by Children's International. When you give to Children's International, you're giving children the health, education, empowerment, and employment they need to break free for life. At Children's International, 84% of every dollar goes towards helping children. That's how you know you're not just making a donation. You're making an impact. This giving season, give something that counts. Donate today at children.org give. That's children.org give. And this week's episode is sponsored by HelloFresh. HelloFresh is the new meal kit delivery service that makes cooking fun, easy, and convenient. Each week, HelloFresh creates new delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions, all designed to take around 30 minutes. Doesn't matter if you're a seasoned home cook or just a novice. And for Inquiring Minds listeners, we have a unique promo code. For $35 off your first week of deliveries, visit HelloFresh.com and enter promo code INQUIRINGMINDS when you subscribe. This week brings the inauguration of Donald Trump. It takes a little getting used to to say President Donald Trump, but along with his inauguration has brought numerous appointments, confirmation hearings, and unfortunately, a lot of bad science. Just in the past few days, we've seen the appointment of anti-vaxxer Robert Kennedy Jr. to head a government committee on vaccines. We've seen the threat of gathering names of scientists that have worked on climate change and the appointment of a climate change denier to the EPA. And sadly, we've seen the return of the dreaded phrase off used by politicians. I'm not a scientist, quote unquote which is generally followed by a bunch of anti-science rhetoric. For science supporters and scientists themselves, this can be a frustrating experience, to say the least. Back in September, I interviewed science journalist Dave Levitan about his forthcoming book, Not a Scientist, How Politicians Mistake, Misrepresent, and Utterly Mangle Science. 
Dave is a science journalist focusing on an array of scientific topics, and especially their intersection with policy and politics. In his book, he talks about how science is used and misused by politicians, giving you a playbook of strategies. I personally will be listening for these different strategies during the confirmation hearings, especially to spot bad science. So given what this week and the next few weeks are going to bring, we thought it was an excellent time to revisit this episode. Hopefully we won't have to hear the phrase, not a scientist, that much longer. So with that, we'll take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Dave Levitan. This week's episode is sponsored by HelloFresh. HelloFresh aims to change the way people eat forever. They're a new meal kit delivery service that makes cooking fun, easy, and convenient. Each week, HelloFresh sends you a new set of delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take 30 minutes or less, whether you're a novice or a seasoned home cook. They source the freshest ingredients measured to the exact quantities you need so there's no food waste. And for somebody like me, who's works and has kids to take care of, having everything pre-portioned and ready to go makes cooking a breeze while still having that feeling of cooking at home. Everything is delivered right to your doorstep in a special insulated box. And for Inquiring Minds listeners, we have a special promo. For $35 off your first week of deliveries, visit HelloFresh.com and enter promo code INQUIRINGMINDS when you subscribe. That's $35 off your first week of deliveries. Visit HelloFresh.com and enter promo code INQUIRINGMINDS when you subscribe. Dave Levitan, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having me. So you're not a scientist, but you've spent countless hours digging through the various science statements from politicians, both recent and from the past, to unearth how they distort and misrepresent the science. But we should probably start at the origin of that now, sadly, iconic phrase, I'm not a scientist. Yeah, so... That, the first example of that that I found actually goes all the way back to Ronald Reagan in 1980. And I, I should say, I, I can't promise no one used it before that, but that was certainly seemed to be the sort of modern version of it. Uh, he was talking about uh, sulfur dioxide emissions, and he compared it to emissions from Mount St. Helens, which had erupted in dramatic fashion just a little while before that. Uh, and he, he said, you know, I'm not a scientist, but, which is sort of the way politicians tend to use this, they then say a scientific thing that often turns out to be wrong. And Reagan was indeed wrong about human emissions of sulfur dioxide, which uh, are important for, you know, for formation of acid rain, which his administration then spent years trying to stave off regulation. So this wasn't without uh, sort of impact even even back then. Uh, it, it took a few decades then for the, the phrase, I'm not a scientist, to, to rear its head again. But when it did, it, it became a thing that, you know, a ton of politicians were using as a way of, you know, getting around talking about global warming in, in the mostly around 2009, 10, that sort of period. You lay out a number of strategies that these politicians use to distort the science. But one thing you note before we, we even dive into how they do it is that you say it's really hard to ascribe intent. Some of these feel very intentional and some of them don't. Can you describe uh, describe why it's so difficult to ascribe intent to this? Well, I, I think that there, there's probably a lot of temptation to ascribe intent anytime a politician gets science wrong, just because there's 
there's so much sort of obvious, uh, there's, there are obvious reasons why they might, you know, things like the influence of oil companies, say, or back in the day, the influence of tobacco companies. And, but when, if we're just trying to describe the techniques of how they get these things wrong, it's very hard to say, well, you meant to lie about this, you know, without, and they'll just say, well, no, I didn't. <laughs> so how are you actually going to, you know, adjudicate that fairly, I guess. And as you say, there are some of these techniques which you can't do without meaning to, but others you could theoretically just not understand. And, and that's, I mean, you know, it would be nice if they just listen to the experts, but sometimes people get science wrong and, and there's no malicious intent behind it. So I, I tried to be careful on, on discussing only the ones that it's really, really hard to say <laughs> that, you know, you could have done it by accident. There are only a few of those, but they, they certainly exist. Well, let's start with one where it was definitely not an accident. And that's probably the most memorable one from the last few years that I remember, which is when Senator James Inhofe brought a snowball to the Senate floor. Yeah. So, th- th- I mean, this is just so egregious. I agree. It's, it's you, I mean, well, especially given Inhofe's history with this issue, it's of course you can ascribe intent here. But yeah, so he, he brought a snowball to the Senate floor on a, a snowy day in, in February, I think it was, uh, just as a way of saying, look, it's snowing, therefore global warming doesn't exist. And of course, like I said, he has a long history of this. He's written a book claiming that global warming is a hoax. I mean, it, it he's sort of the, uh, denier in chief, I guess. So his point here was that because it's snowing, therefore there's no global warming, which is a very clear example of, of cherry picking data. So that's probably the most recognizable of the techniques I talk about is the cherry pick. This version of it uses a single, single data point. So it's snowing today. That's the only data point he's using, or there's snow on the ground today. And somehow he equates snow on the ground today with it can't possibly be warming up the planet. We can't be warming up the planet. And that, I mean, it's, it barely needs debunking just because, I mean, there's, there's no scientist has ever said that global warming means it won't ever snow again. That, and that's essentially what he's saying. And, you know, that you can go into some more detail there. You know, obviously there are, uh, there's science saying that it actually might snow more in a lot of places because the air can hold more moisture uh, and, you know, even though it might warm up and some of those days might turn to rain instead of snow, there's plenty of snowy days in the world. And I think most people understand this by now. It was it was a very, very egregious version of this. Now, there are much more subtle versions that you pick up on, too, like how Ted Cruz has approached describing certain data. And he says it even with a smile on his face as he compliments NASA as well. Yeah, so th- that one... Um, that's an error I've termed the butter up and undercut. It's when you're, you're praising something that is very hard to, to, you know, rail against because it's popular. NASA is generally very popular. People like NASA. Uh, so it's hard to just criticize it, except Ted Cruz, uh, as a senator, has tried to cut funding for NASA's Earth Observing um, Program, which basically means he doesn't want NASA studying climate change. So his method of, of, of doing this is... You know, he'll sit in a Senate hearing and he'll talk for minutes about how great NASA is and how it's inspiring the kids who want to go into science and people looking up at the stars and all this sort of traditional grandiose language related to space travel. But then he'll then he'll argue that we should be looking only up and not down, basically. And, and 
and you know he'll pick on on individual projects or he'll pick on you know the the use of money to to measure certain uh, earth related things rather than space related things and of course that's ridiculous nasa has been observing earth since its earliest days it's even in the founding documents of nasa that the purpose is not just to go to the moon the purpose is to learn more about our own planet on some level cherry picking the data and this uh, buttering up and undercut, as you term it, can have subtlety to it. And in Hoff's case, there wasn't much subtlety to it. But there are much more aggressive techniques that you highlight. And I think the one that comes to mind is the ridicule, ridicule and dismiss. Yeah, so this one, it's it's related to um, a lot of I mean, generally Republican politicians over the years have come up with um, different ways to to try and highlight government spending waste. Uh, so Tom Coburn had the waste book for a few years where he would I just... made it into the waste book one year. Did you really? How did yeah. you manage that? <laughs> I, I worked on an NSF grant that got up to like 87 on the waste list. OK, well, congratulations. That's a, a badge of honor, I would say. Yeah, I'm actually a little bit disappointed I wasn't higher on the list. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, yeah, so the, the things like the Waste Book, and it even goes back farther than that, uh, the um, Golden Fleece Awards are from the, the 70s. William Proxmire, I think, was the uh, politician responsible. Same idea, though, basically highlighting uh, what, what sound like ridiculous wastes of government money. Uh, but it's only when you phrase them in certain ways. So um, Rand Paul uh, is one example, used the ridicule and dismiss uh, in describing some research in, that used fruit flies. Now, the way he said it did sound ridiculous. Uh, the The line is something like uh, about, you know, fruit flies and whether they the male fruit flies prefer younger female fruit flies. And he gets a laugh from his audience every time he says this. And you could just pull the audience because, of course, they prefer younger fruit flies, as if this makes no sense at all to spend money on. But, of course, fruit fly research isn't just about fruit flies. <laughs> We're not just trying to figure out fruit flies. We're trying to figure out things about people and any any scientist will know that which makes it even more egregious because Rand Paul is a doctor and he I'm sure on some level knows that too uh the the specific research he was talking about um had to do with healthy aging and how uh sexuality um can play into how we age which is when you put it that way quite a bit different it's it's only when you phrase these things in certain ways that they start to sound ridiculous and it's it's a way to get people to you know not want the government to spend money the effect though is that people don't understand the importance of basic science research and whose responsibility is it that most people don't understand the value of basic science research like, is it really the politicians job to ensure people understand that or is it a failure of the scientific community because a lot of the examples you cite, there's some turns of phrases, there's some dismissal, but they it goes the heart of it is that the people they're talking to don't know much about uh, what it is that they're being talked to about. Right. And I mean, it's a, that's a very good question. I mean, who's who is in charge of making sure the public understands this stuff? I, I mean, people have, have had a lot of discussions over the years of, of whether scientists and the scientific community and science writers, such as myself, <laughs> have like more of a responsibility to get some of these messages out. The problem is that politicians, I mean, I, I would say they do have a lot of responsibility because they're the ones 
you know, legislating and, and governing where money goes and, and what science actually can get done. And if they're just totally misrepresenting the truth, then, they, I mean, they have very large platforms, right? I mean, it's a scientist can't just, like some random scientist can't just decide he's going to give a speech and everyone will watch, right? So, you know, if you're if you're someone who can get people to watch, then I think your responsibility to properly convey the issues is a little bit greater. I mean, I, I don't want to say that scientists shouldn't be better at communicating. I'm sure everybody can improve at that. But even even the best communicators don't have the platform that, that prominent politicians do. I want to talk a, a little bit about some of the subtler techniques that uh, are employed, because when it comes to modern science, we oftentimes deal in probabilities. We don't give definitive answers in a way that uh, a lot of times the general public wants. We have to say it's more likely to X instead of it's a it's 100% going to be X. And there's a arena you call the certain uncertainty, uh, which I think points to how politicians have used that bit of uncertainty and probability against science itself. Yeah, that 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 one is um, again. This is one I actually find it sort of a little easier to ascribe intent because you really have to mean what you're saying, where you you have to mean to do this sort of. Uh, the most sort of common version of this is with again with climate change. So when a scientist or sorry, when a politician says something like, uh, you know, we don't the science isn't settled or we don't know enough about this or so maybe some more detailed version of that related to specific. Um, climate change related research, what they're saying is, you know, if we don't know everything, we shouldn't act. And that, of course, is ridiculous because, you know, in any scientific field, there's always uncertainty. Uncertainty is inherent to every every possible field of science. And, you know, it, it's it's purely a political ploy to say only only when we know everything should we act. And what really sort of bothers me about this one is that they really pick and choose when to use this. So they say it about global warming a lot. We don't know everything, therefore we shouldn't do anything. But then on certain other topics, they say the exact opposite thing. A few things like um, Chris Christie calling marijuana a gateway drug definitively, as if we have suddenly done some research and science says it's a gateway drug, when actually science is a bit confused about that. Or uh, another very controversial one, the issue of, of when during gestation a fetus can feel pain. And of course, that's used as, as part of the argument for certain uh, restrictive abortion laws. Again, that is not something science has settled. But people will say that that question has been answered as if it was done. And then on other things, they'll say we don't know anything. So it's very sort of pick and choose where you decide the science is settled. You know, as a scientist, I found those two examples both really compelling because it's hard, even when you're a professional generally in the field, to ascribe where consensus is. And having like a number of studies laid out for you, which you do in the book, actually did really help somebody who is scientifically literate but not necessarily an expert in that field ascertain that. But it points to, I think, a, a really bigger issue in a sense that there are places that the science isn't settled um, at all and that the politicians are representing it correctly. But oftentimes we don't hear that come up in conversation. Is that right? Sure. I, I mean, well, 
I, I guess that's a little tough because, you know, as I was saying, the science is never settled, I guess. <laughs> that it, it's almost like a bad turn of phrase to use regardless, right? I mean, even with something like climate change, which is now just universally agreed, it's happening now, it's bad, we should do something very drastic to try and stop it. That doesn't mean that there aren't open questions. Uh, and if, if politicians were a little more careful about how they talked about this, then I think, you know, that might really help the public understand it a little better. I mean, as you said, we don't really hear that sort of nuance. But if, if you know, someone said, we clearly need to do something about climate change, um, you know, the exact number of degrees that we should be aiming to keep it to is still a little bit tough. You know, uh, things like that would, would actually, I think, I mean, it's complicated, but I think it would help. I think it would help if politicians were willing to address some of the actual uncertainty without hiding behind sort of the fake uncertainty. We should address the elephant in the room, literally, because almost everyone you highlight in this book happens to be a Republican politician. And I think you address it up front. And I will just note that this podcast used to be hosted by Chris Mooney, who literally wrote the book, The Republican War on Science. <laughs> which I which I note, I think, in the introduction. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. So I just want to, uh, you know, have you uh, give you a chance to talk about why is it that there's so many Republicans in this book that it's like over 90 percent of the examples here refer to Republican politicians? Right. So. I, I should say the book is not intended to be a, a partisan book. I mean, it's, it, it, as you say, it certainly focuses on Republicans. That, that is not on purpose. If there were more Democrats getting science wrong, I would include them. It's just that over the past few decades, as Chris Mooney has, and others have, have chronicled, one party has sort of abandoned mainstream science and, and they are sort of unapologetic about it in some ways. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it's it, it is difficult to try and write in a nonpartisan fashion when almost everyone you're talking about is of one party. And, you know, the people on the cover of the book are all Republicans. <laughs> uh, but, you know, there, there's sort of nothing I can do about that. There, I mean, Obama does appear in the book a few times. I will say his errors are much more subtle. They're a matter of sort of very nitpicky, almost nuance. And the reason I highlight them is not because. You know, he's he's doing something so terrible. It's just that he's opening himself up to attack from those other people who are so eager to get science wrong. Uh, if you're a little more precise, then there's fewer things to attack. So, yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't have I, I don't have like a great explanation for it. I think a lot of people have written already about why that party has gone that way. But I, I will just say, you know, it, it's not. It's not intentional. I'm not trying to pick on one party. And, you know, in the future, that could flip. I mean, there are some issues that Democrats are are not great about. GMOs is one that a lot of Democrats tend to get wrong. Um, you know, some of the vaccine denial uh, tend to be in more liberal pockets of the country. Um, politicians haven't really been, you know, true villains in that regard. But uh, it, there there is some crossover. But, yeah, it, it's it's true. There is a whole lot more uh, fodder, I guess, for this sort of book uh, from one party than the other. And I, 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 I don't I'm not going to you know, I can't say that I'm sorry that that's the case. It's just that that's the that's the way it is right now. We have to talk about the current election cycle, which I think, thankfully, is coming to an end in the next couple months. 
because it feels like it's gone on forever. We should talk about the role science has played in it. This seems to be a stranger election cycle with Trump and Clinton than in previous years. Uh, what role have we seen um, uh, science play in this cycle, especially in the context of utilization of these different techniques to uh, distort it? Yeah, so honestly, science is sort of in a lot of ways, dropped off the radar in this election just because, well, because Trump has said so many crazy things. Science is just way, way down the list of of relevant issues. You know, when when he's when he's talking about you know using more nukes on countries, I mean, it sort of it sort of makes you know what the funding level for NIH is doesn't really sound as important, <laughs> and uh, so. I mean, it's it's it depresses me in a lot of ways that it means that even on the Democratic side, uh, science is just less discussed. I mean, yeah, uh, Clinton definitely talks about how important um, fighting climate change is and a, a few other issues, but it just it just so rarely comes up given given the general level of discourse. Uh, so yeah, it's it's certainly been a little bit different. Um, in, in just like, you know, four years ago, there was a, um, a move toward getting the, the candidates to just talk a lot more about science and have actual meaningful debates about it. But it, it just hasn't been, you know, high enough on the list of issues this year. Yeah, that group I think you're referring to is Science Debate, which yes. really put this idea on the map of having the candidates respond to a set of questions around uh, uh, all focused on science within either an independent debate or just get responses from the candidates themselves. Uh, and they've already released their set of questions for this year. Do you see any of these questions being meaningfully addressed between now and Election Day, given how things are going? And do you think that's even important, given what's going on? Well, I'll start by saying, yes, I think it's important. Um, it, it's because there are very important questions, uh, you know, things that are have sort of I don't even think this is hyperbole, sort of existential importance. Uh, so, yeah, I, I absolutely think they're important. Uh, they're important issues and it's important to understand where these candidates stand on those issues. However, I don't think <laughs> that they are going to be meaningfully addressed. Again, Clinton certainly has talked about some of these things and may talk about them again. But I mean, when Trump addresses scientific issues, it's it's hard to even you know pick out which of the techniques that I that I describe in the book that he's using because he's basically just making things up. So I guess it's the last one. It's the straight up fabrication that he basically makes up everything he says when it comes to science. Uh, there's very little subtlety in it. It's just this is a hoax. That's fake. Everything's fake. Science doesn't exist. So, I mean, when that's your level of discourse, I don't think there are really like meaningful conversations to be had. Well, thankfully, there are other candidates out there in terms of down ballot races and certainly a number of referendum and uh, initiatives on state ballots that probably touch upon these issues in a more serious way, certainly around energy uh, production and usage. Uh, and then we always have some sort of annual discussion about the NASA budget in some way. So these issues aren't going away. Uh, it's just that it seems that we're in a weird cycle with this election, given the two major candidates. I wanted to transition to 
what you think just the average voter listener should really think about how science is portrayed by these politicians. Like in one way, after reading your book, I felt m- even more cynical than I do about the political process. But I don't think that's what you're trying to get across. Uh, no, although I certainly don't blame you for having that reaction. Um, I mean, as, as as I was writing it, I I certainly felt that way sometimes myself. There there's there just seems to be so much sort of uh, such an easy banter of misinformation that a lot of these politicians tend to use. Uh, in terms of what voters should think about or what they should should know, I, I mean, I, I guess the simple answer is is to have a healthy degree of skepticism when politicians talk about science. And you know, there are certain key words, some of which we've already touched on, that I think are really important to listen for. If you're listening to a politician uh, talk about uh, about a scientific topic, if they say something isn't settled then they probably have an agenda. There's probably a reason that they're saying it isn't settled. And and it's worth looking into whether or not, you know, they have a point there at all. Uh, if they if they're making fun of basic research for some reason or other, they're I mean, that I, I feel like you can just think that they're probably wrong because basic research often sounds ridiculous uh, if you just say it quickly. Um, so that's another one to think about. If one thing that I found, too, if you hear someone say, uh, a report just came out or, you know, there was a study or something. I, I would look for the study or the report because oftentimes um, politicians aren't really talking about actual science there. Uh, this goes into one of the, the, the techniques I talk about, the blame the blogger, where if it's online, it must be true. Uh, so if, if they say a report just came out, it's worth thinking about where the report's from or if it's even a report at all. Sometimes a report means someone's blog post. So, I, I mean, I know it's tough to have to, as a voter, think you have to check every single statement that you hear. So that's why I think just generally being a bit skeptical is useful. And if there's an issue that you're particularly interested in, say energy production in your state or, uh, you know, or the use of vaccines or something, then it's worth, if you hear a politician say something, it's worth checking on the things that you care about uh, and trying to find the source rather than just trusting them, I think. Has it always been this way, especially in U.S. politics? Are we in a different realm of time right now? I think we are in, in sort of a different realm. I, I think the there used to be a little bit more probably reverence for scientists. And, you know, we could probably argue about whether that was good or bad at various points in time. But Politicians, I don't think I don't think they always felt so comfortable just saying something scientific uh, without actually knowing it. You know, I, I and this is more a feeling than than um, really thorough research. Other people have written about the history of, of science and uh, especially in the political realm before. But I do think that the the polarization that we're experiencing extends into science. So. You know, it, it's easier for politicians when uh, their audiences seem so polarized to uh, sort of not trust actual scientific consensus or scientific experts, really. So I, I do think it's 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 different than it's been. And uh, I've heard I, I talked to a couple of the, the people in that science debate group um, for the book. And one of them, uh, I think it was Sean Otto, who said that as, as far as he knows, this is sort of the worst science has ever been treated by politicians since at least sort of the 19 teens or 20s. 
Uh, and I, I think he's probably right. And just personally, as a science writer, and you've worked at, you know, SciCheck, you know, trying to keep politicians honest about the science statements they make, how do you want it to be? What's realistic, given that science is only a, a one input into the larger political discussion? Uh, but how could it look and how should it look? That's a great question. And I, I'm not going to claim to have, like, you know, the answer to that. Uh, I mean, I guess what I would like is that politicians, that it became normalized for politicians to just listen to scientists a little more. Um, they don't seem to care right now if what they're saying about science is backed up by actual people doing the science. And so it's a very simple ask in a way, just like, you know, you let the scientific consensus be your talking point. And I don't think that's so outrageous. Although, I mean, look, as long as there are, you know, political agendas, someone is going to misuse science. I, I don't pretend that we could suddenly just stop doing that. There's always going to be, you know, business interests and other things, as you said, other inputs that go into this discussion. So, but, but I don't know, I, I guess I, I do wish, though, that we could just, that it wasn't so controversial to say, this is what the majority of scientists say. Therefore, let's go with that. Let's, and, and yes, of course, there's uncertainty. There's always uncertainty. There's always, you know, differing opinions. There always might be people dissenting from that consensus. But at least that's like a good starting point, you know? And I, I, I think, I'm not sure that's reasonable right now, but maybe in the future it is. <laughs> well, it's not an unreasonable thing, especially for this show, to report on what scientists think and believe in an unfiltered way. So it, on that optimistic note, uh, Dave Levitan, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. Thanks a lot for having me. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. We'd also like to thank our supporters on Patreon, especially David Noel, Michael Galgool, Kyle Raihala, Jonathan Worsley, Shushi Lin, Eric Clark, John Kirk, Jordan Millar, Herring Shane, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. Thank you so much. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, clips at confirmation hearings that made you insane or anything else to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration of many news organizations. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And I'm your host, Kishore Hari, at Science Quiche. Indre will be back next week. And this week's episode is sponsored by HelloFresh. HelloFresh is the new meal kit delivery service that makes cooking fun, easy, and convenient. Each week, they send you a new set of delicious recipes with step-by-step -step instructions, all designed to take 30 minutes or less, from everyone from novices all the way to seasoned home cooks. They source the freshest ingredients, measure the exact quantities so there's no food waste whatsoever. And everything is delivered right to your doorstep in a special insulated box for free. To try HelloFresh, go to the website hellofresh.com and enter promo code inquiringminds for $35 off your first week of deliveries. 
That's HelloFresh.com and enter promo code InquiringMinds when you subscribe for $35 off your first week of deliveries. A lot can happen between falling in love with a house online and owning it. Between imagining living there and breathing in your new home for the first time. Having an advocate who can help you navigate the complex world of financing, inspections, negotiating, analyzing the market, and talking through any anxieties that may pop up, that can make all the difference. That's what the expertise of a Realtor can do for you. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors and bound by a code of ethics. Because that's who we are.